Let's go ahead and get to it. Let's go ahead and bow our heads as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning that our hearts would be open, our, our, our minds would be open to receive what you have for us, Father. And Lord, I pray that every time that we, we dive into your word, it's not just an intellectual exercise, but Father, that, that we would be changed as your word speaks to us, as we have a greater revelation of who you are. So we thank you for this time this morning, and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, today we're going to try to get all the way through chapter 8. Um, 2 Corinthians is a tough one to try to, to split up in smaller, like either the chunks are too small or they're too big. So um, today we've got to get through a lot. There's a lot that we're going to be talking about, but it's something that's really important. We're going to be talking about giving everybody's favorite subject you don't have to be concerned because we already took the offering that's what i was told i actually didn't see it go through but i was told that we took the offering this morning so we're not going to do it again this is just a time to learn and to grow and what's happening here is at some point um, maybe when titus delivered the first letter maybe before maybe after we're not really sure when this happened but we know that that uh, titus started a collection for the saints in the, in the Corinthian church, just like the Macedonian church, which we're going to talk a lot about today, had started to gather. Titus had done the same thing, but apparently it had got started, but it never really got finished. So in this part of the letter, Paul is really going to encourage the, the Corinthians to finish what they started and completing what he, he refers to quite often as an act of grace. Isn't it amazing that when we give, it's an act of the grace of God in our lives. Amen. So, but like I said, we've got a lot to get through, so we're just going to jump right into it. It'll be the shortest introduction I've ever done right there. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So these churches here, the churches of Macedonia that Paul is talking about, is actually the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So this is, it's the whole region there in Macedonia. Paul had planted several churches in that area. And Paul is, is starting off basically commending these churches in that area because of the great amount that, of grace that God has given to him. He says that we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to the churches in Macedonia, which is an interesting thing because... Paul is talking about this great amount of grace, but then he goes on and talks about that it's all about their giving, about how they are going through and, and, and gathering uh, a good amount of finances and resources and whatever to help the, the saints that are in Jerusalem that are struggling. And Paul says that this, this great amount of grace, which is the idea of it's, it's what God is working inside of them. And I find that interesting because most of us, when we think that we do a thing, we think that it's because we did it. And we tend to give the credit. I mean, did you guys see how generous I was? I gave so much. And we don't recognize that when we do that, it has nothing to do with us. Because before you got saved, you had no desire to give to a church. You had no desire probably to give to anybody. 
unless it could benefit you in some way. Matter of fact, there are so many people that, that like to be generous so their name can be put up on lights. And what's Paul say? If that's what you're doing, you've already received your reward. But the reality is, is that when Paul's talking about this, he says that their, their willingness to give was actually the grace of God. And this word grace is an interesting one. If you go back in uh, uh, many, many messages ago, I spent a lot of time talking about, I think the message was called Extending Grace. But I talked about this meaning, this, this word grace that is used. And it turns out that this word that is translated to grace here is the Greek word charis, and it's used 170 times in the New Testament. Sometimes we don't even know what the word means. Charis is this like common word that is used in so many ways. And actually it turns out that the Christian took this common Greek word and kind of commandeered it for themselves. But it's used, like I said, 170 times. The meaning is almost never exactly the same. And sometimes we don't even know what it means. Like we're, It's hard to figure out what they were trying to say. It's such a common word that they were using. They kind of used it for everything. And it's not even just in the New Testament that it's used like this either. It's in secular context. No matter where you find this word, it's, it's just one of those words that's used for, has different meanings. You know, it's just the... The, like the idea of a word like, man, that was so cool. And what can cool mean? It can mean it's cold or it can mean it was awesome. You know, it's one of those kind of words where it has a bunch of different meanings used the same way. And here, the, the meaning that it's being used is really to describe um, God-given generosity. The grace that he's talking about here is God-given generosity that is given to these guys. And that's the thing that's interesting to me, the way they use this word grace to mean so many things, is because we've probably all been taught that grace is, is something giving that you don't deserve, right? Anybody ever heard that? Mercy is not being giving something you do deserve. Grace is being giving something you don't deserve. And I think that's a, a, a good simple definition, but I think the problem with it is it's just a little too simple. And I think a better way to describe grace, the way that I like to describe it, is everything that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And it encompasses all of those things. And in this case, like I said, uh, I think when we were talking during the offering earlier, I, I said, uh, you're made in the image of God, and one of the things that you have because of that is a generous spirit inside of you. Now, when, before we're born again, we're broken. We got all kinds of stuff messed up. But as soon as you get born again, you're restored to that same position that Adam had. You have the spirit of Christ inside of you. And you have that generous spirit inside of you at that moment. And there's so many other things that gets accomplished at that moment. And that's what I think grace really is. And the truth is, is we've been given that even though we don't deserve it. But it's more than just that simple. It encompasses so many areas of our life. But the one that Paul is talking about here is this idea of being generous. And the thing is, if you look at the Macedonian churches, at least the way Paul describes them, it would have to be the impact of God in their lives to allow them to be as generous as they were being. I mean, if you look at their situation, things are not going well for these churches. They were at the rock bottom in many ways, and this idea where he says a severe test of affliction, this isn't just light words being used. They're going through some, some rough stuff. Paul isn't embellishing. Things are tough for them. And you can tell that by reading through the letters that Paul wrote to these churches. In, the, in the, the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said that they had received the word in a severe affliction. 
He also tells the Philippians not to be frightened by anything in their, in their opponents. We see that these churches are not only dealing with, with poverty and really, really not having enough, they're, they're very, very poor, but they're also dealing with severe persecution because of the gospel. They're, not, they're having a rough time of it. And it's hard for us to understand that because Christians in the United States have never really had a rough time of it. When things are bad, it's really sad. And and I'm not saying we shouldn't stand against it, but the worst we've ever had is the California government saying they can't come together and sing. Now, I think we should stand up against that, but that's still pretty mild in the scheme of things, in the scheme of history. We've never really had it bad, so we don't understand what this severe test of affliction really means, but they don't have anything. They're poor, they're being persecuted, but out of their abundance of joy, it says in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed. So they have an abundance of joy. Guess where they got that? God's grace. It's because of what Jesus did into us, from what God had already given them. And then out of their extreme poverty, which was just a result of their circumstances. You know, how many of you guys know that we shouldn't let circumstances dictate how we live for God? But out of those two things, their abundance of joy, which God gave them, and out of their poverty, which was the situation that they're in, it says generosity overflowed. A wealth of generosity overflowed. Now, it's easy to see how generosity overflows out of joy, right? Because when we're, when we're full of joy, it's easy to want to give. But when life sucks, giving is probably the last thing that's on your mind. It doesn't even have to be uh, affliction or poverty. If anything bad is going on in your life, the last thing that you're thinking about is being generous to somebody else. But in the midst of their circumstances, how do we get an overflow out of their poverty. That's the grace of God working in their lives. Recognizing that what they have in Christ is more than anything they'll ever have on this earth. And then Paul begins to explain that, that giving out of this, this sense of poverty is one is they gave according to their, to their means. That's what he says. He says they gave according to their means. But he doesn't stop there because he says, I can testify they gave beyond their means. So that means that first they gave from their excess, according to their means, whatever they had extra. But they didn't stop there. They began to give everything else. Most like, you remember the, the, the widow that gave the widow's might. It wasn't very much, but it was everything that she had. And that's exactly what the Macedonian church is doing right now. They're just giving up everything. I imagine they figured that God's going to take care of us. We're going to get through no matter what. So let's just make sure other people are taken care of. They gave more than they could afford to give up. And that's interesting. Because if I'm honest, I don't think I've ever given more than I can afford to give up. You know, I've given, I've been generous, I've given a lot many times, but it's typically always been out of my excess. But these people were so in love with God and what they were doing that they were willing to give up everything because they trusted Him. And it's interesting because they didn't just try to do it. It says they, they begged for the favor. They gave according to their means, like a testify beyond the needs of their own accord, begging us earnestly. This earnestly means with serious intent. They were serious about wanting to give, and they were begging to give be, uh, beyond their means. And he says, of their own accord. 
He wants to make it clear that they weren't giving like that because he was up there, you know, uh, uh, browbeating him, trying to talk him into it, telling him, if you don't give, you're going to hell. There was nothing like that. They, they, they were giving out of a response to what God has done for them, and they begged for the opportunity. They understood that it wasn't a burden to give like this, but it was a privilege. Take a moment to let that sink in. They figured it was a privilege to give away more than they could afford that would probably put them in a worse situation that they're in now. And even though they had next to nothing, they considered it a privilege to give that away to those who were in need in Jerusalem. And this is the grace of God at work inside of them. And you have that same grace working inside of you. And Paul says, we didn't even expect this. This wasn't as we expected this wasn't Paul saying this is what you need to do. This wasn't Paul saying that you have to give like this. It wasn't as they expected, but he said, first they gave themselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. You know, you'll be surprised what happens in your life if you make God the priority in your life. If you make God the priority in your life, you'll, you'll be just blown away about how your life changed and what, how that results in your life and the things that you're going to do. And to be clear, this isn't a, uh, uh, a time thing. It's not a priority thing. It's not like uh, first you give yourself to the Lord the first 10 years of your life, and then the next 10 years of your life you're going you're gonna to go ahead and, and give yourself to somebody else. What he's talking about is a priority situation. When you prioritize God in your life, then it'll change how you live your life. And for the Macedonian church, first they prioritize God in their life, and then after that they prioritize Paul's ministry. Because God had sent Paul to them. Their priorities had completely shifted as a result of what God accomplished inside of their lives. That's why there should be evidence in somebody's life if they get born again. We should see a change in somebody's life when they get born again. When you have that kind of faith, when, when, you're the, the, when inside of you changes, you get a brand new spirit inside of you, it begins to reflect on the outside. Some people, it happens all at once. Some people, it takes time. But there's always progress. There's always movement. Because when God works inside of you, how can you do anything else? But for the Macedonian church, their priorities completely shifted. And they no longer considered themselves as the most important, but they considered others as more important than themselves. Amen? And then Paul continues in verses 6 through 7. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he, he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So now, after Paul has kind of talked up the Macedonian churches, he's kind of bragging on them a little bit, he then turns his eyes towards the Corinthian church. And it seems, like I said, at some point, Titus was there and he started this work. He started this collection for the saints. He says that Titus should go back as he had started and complete this act of grace among you. And we don't know what happened. We get there, it got started, and maybe their enthusiasm for, for receiving this collection had just kind of waned away. Paul left, it wasn't on their mind anymore. Or maybe, especially with so many turning against Paul, you know, a lot of Paul's letters is defending his ministry. People were turning against him. Maybe as they, some were turning against Paul, they just didn't have the drive to support him anymore. Or maybe, 
as, as he had already been accused, they thought that it was some sort of fraudulent thing. They thought maybe Paul was just trying to skim some money off the top and he was just deceiving them. Or maybe because Paul worked there and he didn't receive any money from them. You remember Paul says, we didn't ask anything of you. They thought, well, maybe because he didn't receive anything from us, this collection is really just for him, so he gets his. He's skimming off the top. The truth is we can only speculate why the offering stopped being collected. We can only speculate why this happened. You remember in the first letter, Paul said, set aside some money every day of the week for the collection of the saints. He instructed him to do this. Apparently it wasn't happening. So Paul said he's going to send Titus back to finish the work that he had started when he was there and complete this act of grace. Remember, or notice he refers to it as an act of grace here. It's not going to be any different for the Corinthians. It'll be God's grace working in them that allows them to give and, 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 and compels them to give as well. And this act of grace that was working of God in their life was, was, was an urging to be charitable. Have you ever noticed that, that when you feel God speaking to you, he'll, 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 you'll feel God telling you to do some stuff that you might not have done otherwise? Because when God works inside of you, things begin to change. And, and that's what Paul is counting on, is that they would have the same act of grace working inside of them that would, that would urge them to be charitable as well. Our willingness to serve and to be charitable is, charitable is not something that's naturally inside of us. The truth is, is that we're born selfish. You don't have to have kids for very long to understand that. From the moment they're born, they begin to do whatever they can to manipulate you into getting what they want. And obviously it's our job to get them what they need, but what do you think a baby crying is? Letting you know it's hungry. It's worried about itself. It's not worried about you sleeping. It's worried about it eating. We're born selfish. And it's the work of God inside of us that begins to change us to be more like him. So Paul continues to encourage them. He says, look, guys, Titus is going to come complete it. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace always. Paul begins to encourage this church. Now, some have said that this is kind of a sarcastic jab from Paul, kind of like him saying, well, if you guys say you're so, so good in these things, faith, speech, and knowledge, if you say you're so good in these things, you should, be, you should be this good in giving as well. But that doesn't seem like Paul to me. That doesn't seem like what we see in Paul. It doesn't seem to fit his character to, to really be pointing sarcastic jabs at people. Not to mention, when you're acting that way, it's not terribly effective <laughs> at getting people to, to do what, what needs to be done. But the thing I notice about Paul is that Paul is always encouraging, even when he's rebuking. And we've seen this in his letters, this letter to the Second Corinthians. We've seen it in his first letter, and we see it in all the letters to Paul's churches. He always encourages them, even if he's going to need to rebuke them. Because Paul genuinely believes this about them. And I believe that Paul believes this about the Corinthian church. This isn't some sort of, sort of jab to try to get them to do more. He's just saying, look, guys, you guys are kind of awesome. You guys ha have, have so many things made. They, they got it. When he preached to them, they got it. They understood. And even in 1 Corinthians, if you read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, he says very similar things to them. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. 
I don't think this is a jab at them trying to prod them to give. This is him just repeating what he's always said. You guys are blessed. You guys excel in these areas. And truthfully, the Corinthian church had a lot of things going for them. They were no stranger to the gifts of the Spirit. Matter of fact, they excelled so much in them that Paul said, you guys got to tone it down a bit. You're making people think that you're drunk and crazy. You're not being in order in the service. This may be actually what he's talking about here. You excel in faith and speech and knowledge. When Paul preached to them, they understood it. They got it. And they trusted the word of God. And they were able to speak in tongues and, 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 and in prophecy and all of those areas. And they had knowledge of the word of God because they actually understood what Paul was trying to teach them. They were able to hear what Paul said, understand it, and then move in it. And it says that they were earnest about these things. Paul likes this word earnest. But it just means that they were serious. They were diligent. They, they were sincere about these things. And the next line, it's a little confusing. He says that they excel in our love for you. And this didn't make sense to me. Like, How do you excel in somebody else's love for you? But you'll notice, probably in your Bibles right now, there's a little footnote next to this. And it's, it can say, in our love for you, or some manuscripts say, your love for us. So some manuscripts say it this way, other manuscripts say it the other way. Now, to me, it seems like it makes more sense, just in the context of what he's saying, is that you excel in your love for us. You excel in your love. And as I'm studying this, here's the thing. Turns out that the Greek for both of those phrases, um, our love for you and your love for us, sound exactly the same when they're spoken. They're only written slightly different, but if you say them out loud, they would be pronounced the exact same way. So some scholars say that, well, maybe what happened is the scribes were writing it down, somebody was reading to them, they heard the phrase, and they got to choose which one they thought it was as they wrote it down. It's literally... The, the, the same word, it's just the accents over the word and like one letter changes, but it's pronounced the same way. So maybe that's why they did it. Now, I'm not a, a biblical scholar and I, I certainly don't know Greek, but uh, so I trust what these people say, but when I read it, it seems to make more sense to me in the context of what he's saying is that they excel in their love for them. And here's the thing that even though Paul is beginning to tell them in this, this letter and the, in the, the previous chapters, he says, open your heart to us. We know that he still wants them to, to open their heart or to, to, to love openly like they're loving. But Titus just came back to him and says that, hey, they, they got your letter, the first letter. They received it well and they renewed their zeal for you. It's not that they didn't love Paul. Paul just wanted them to be completely open and start shutting out the, uh, the ones that were coming in and trying to persuade them away, all the people that were the opponents of Paul. So they still excelled in their love for Paul in his ministry. And Paul looks at this list of things. He says, guys, you guys get it in so many ways. You excel in all these areas. And I just want you to see, I just want to see you excel in every area that God has touched your life. But then he goes on to clarify some things. In verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. 
So Paul is, is already sensitive to the fact that he's been, that he's been accused of being, um, he's been accused of dominating the members of his churches. We know this because he's often having to defend it. Even in, in this letter, in chapter 1, verses 23 to 24, he says, But I call to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but that we, that we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. He had to clarify then, not that we lord it over you in your faith. Paul was being accused of being dominating of the churches, to just throwing his weight around to get what he wanted. So he wants to be clear here. He's like, listen, guys, I want you to excel in this act of grace, excel in charity, excel in giving, but I'm not commanding you to do this. The truth is, Paul rarely tended to command people that were under him. He wanted them to to not respond out of some sort of a, a, a sense of obligation or duty, but rather he would appeal to them in love. You remember he did the same thing to, to Philemon. Uh, in eight, uh, Philemon 8 9, it says, According though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is cri- required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. So Paul isn't about commanding people to do what he thinks that they need to do. But this doesn't mean that as, his, as their pastor, he wouldn't try to encourage them to do the right thing and teach them the right thing. Matter of fact, most of Paul's letters are instructional. And the purpose of this example of the Macedonian church is to show them what a legitimate response to the grace of God in their life would look like with the intent of spurring that same response in them. Because here's the thing, church. For the Christian, giving is all about your response to what God has done for you. We know that God loves a cheerful giver. What he doesn't want is someone who gives out of compulsion, someone who gives out of a sense of duty. God's not looking for people to give just because their pastor told them to. Instead, it's about the attitude of your heart. It's the natural response to a God that's given you everything. Our natural response would be to to give in return. It's a response to God's great love, and that's what he's saying. I say this is not a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. What he's saying is, as I told you about the Macedonian church, to show you their earnestness, their seriousness, their, their, their dutifulness, of, of, uh, or, or just that, that sense of, of um, earnest, earnestness. It's a hard word to, to say, but it's really just their seriousness about it. He says, I wanted to show you by the seriousness of others that your love is also genuine. Basically, if you take this seriously then it's going to be evidence of your genuine love for others as well. He says the act of others doing it in genuine love will be the same as you doing it out of genuine love as well. You see, the Macedonian church, we've already learned we're giving as a response to God's love. And he wanted the Corinthian church to do the same thing. And if they respond in the same way, then it'll be proof that their love, that their, that their, their giving would be the same a response to God's love. And in verses 9 through 11, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give, you, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. 
So then Paul begins to give the example of Jesus. And the example of Jesus is pretty amazing because if you look at it, Jesus gave up everything for us. He stepped down from his throne, laying his deity aside. And he walked on that cross for the joy set before him, which was you and I. And he freely gave his life for us. And he did this so the Corinthian church should be made rich. That's what he's talking about here. Christ was rich, but he became poor for our sake so that by his poverty we might become rich. And he's talking to the Corinthian church, but this applies to us as well. Because in Christ's death and resurrection, he gave up everything so that we could gain everything. And the Macedonian church was kind of following this example. They were giving up everything so that other Christians who needed it could gain everything, that they would benefit. And then Paul goes on to say after that, quite unintuitively, he says, in this matter I give my, benef- my judgment, this benefits you. Giving, although it seems like makes our life harder, it seems like that we're going to go with less, it seems like that we're going to go without, giving actually is for our benefit. Because giving helps us walk in the person that God made us to be. God is generous. And as a result, so are we. Both being made in his image and also being restored to that image when Jesus Christ comes to live inside of you when you say yes to him. Giving actually benefits us. Not the least of which you can find multiple other scriptures in, in, in the New Testament that says that if, if you give, God will bless you. Now I want to be clear, that's not why we give. God is not some sort of holy slot machine where if we put something in, we're hoping to get something out. We give because of everything he's done for us. But the reality is, is that when we give, he blesses us. And he'll continue to do so as long as that you are walking with him, amen? So he knows that it, it's for their benefit. And then he goes on to remind them that you started this a year ago. So we don't know if it was when Titus delivered the last letter, but we know it was a year ago when Titus was down there starting this collection for the saints. And it's interesting because not only did they start to do it, but they desired to start to do it. They had the same desire that the Macedonian church had. They, they desired to do it. They just didn't follow through all the way. So Paul is saying, I know you desire to do it. Follow through with it. He says, finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring may be matched by your completed work. Paul says, don't let it end with desire, but continue the work. It's interesting how often we as humans do this. We have a desire to do something, but we don't follow through. We have a desire to diet, but it doesn't work out. We have a desire to start exercising, but the desire is not matched by our actual doing. We have a desire to start reading our Bible more, spend more time in prayer, but our desire is not matched by our actual doing. And in the Corinthians uh, church's case, and probably many of ours as well, they had a desire to be generous. But their doing never matched their desire. So Paul says, pick this back up. Continue the course. 
And he continues in verses 12 through 15, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. So Paul had used a Macedonian church who had given beyond their means, but he's not saying to the Corinthian church that you have to do the same. You know, it's just like so often when we read about the first church in Acts, and they, uh, they sold everything, and they put it all together in a big giant pool. And they, they made sure that everybody, they, they, they were just a, a big giant uh, a cooperative with all their stuff. And we can get into a, a mess if we think, well, that's what all the churches should look like. But if you read the New Testament, no other church does that. It's only the first church. So apparently that was something unique to them. And the same with the Macedonian church. They gave everything even beyond their means. But Paul's making it clear, that's not what we're asking. Matter of fact, when Paul was talking about it, he says, we didn't even expect this. He says, it's not what we're asking, but we do ask that you give according to your means. He says, if the readiness is there, if you have that desire to give, then it's acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. If you ever get involved in a ministry when they want you to give on credit card, that's absolutely incorrect. We shouldn't be going into debt to give. We shouldn't be burdening, or we shouldn't, unless God's telling you to do so, and God's not going to tell you to go into debt. I can promise you that. He's kind of against it. But it does, Paul's saying, not even that you would be burdened. You're not supposed to be burdened. You're not supposed to go. You shouldn't, you shouldn't go without food so somebody else can have food. That's not what he's requiring. Now, if God's asking you to do so, you should say yes. And if that's your desire to do so, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's not a, a command from God. Instead, he says, but if the readiness is there, give what you have. He says, don't, get everything, don't give everything so that, that you would be burdened and they would be eased, but give what you have in surplus so that in your abundance, while you have a bunch, at their present time, you should supply their need. And he says, you know what? There may come a time when you're in need and they'll have an abundance and they'll do the same thing for you. That's the whole idea of this matter of fairness. And really, church, it's just about being a blessing to one another and to those who are in need. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we have an abundance and sometimes we have a need. And that's all there is to it. Paul was saying that if you have the abundance, if you have the means, make sure that make sure that you give to others that are in need, to make sure that they're taken care of. This is why as a church we send money to the work that's being done in Iraq and Egypt because we have the means and they have a need. This is why we have that, that website that we put up so that anybody that needs something can reach out to us because we have the means and they have the need. And this is why so many times I've seen even in this church is, is one another, you guys have taken care of one another because at points in time, You've had the, the means, and somebody else has had the need. And I think that if we make it a point to live with this attitude, we'll always have more than enough. We'll always not go without. Because even though we may not have it, somebody else always will. And if we all have the same attitude, we'll make sure that we're all taken care of. Amen. And then now, 
Paul starts talking, starts talking about going to retrieve this, this offering. And in verses 16 through 17, he says, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, that appeal was for him to go back down and to finish this act of grace that he started. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, there's that word again, being very serious about doing it, he is going to you of his own accord. So Paul is giving thanks for Titus, who loves the Corinthians just as much as he does. And we know that, he talked about earlier, when Titus went down there, they received Titus with open arms. And matter of fact, we saw that, that the boasting that Paul had made about the Corinthian church was proved true. And Titus is gladly going to return to Corinth to finish this work that he had started to bring this, this act of grace to completion. I don't know if you know this, but people who want to serve are so valuable in the kingdom of heaven. You know, Paul is, is thankful because he didn't have to force Titus to go. He didn't have to, to twist his arm, but Titus wanted to serve God. Titus wanted to serve the kingdom of heaven. He said, yeah, I want to go. Titus wanted to serve his pastor. And it's also likely that Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know that he wasn't twisting Titus's arm. So that's one of the things that Paul is always navigating through all of this is this group of people that hate him down there, that are always trying to throw him under the bus, that are always trying to turn his churches against him, saying that he's a liar, a deceiver, or he's heavy-handed, or all of these things. And he wanted to be clear that, hey, I'm not forcing Titus to do this. He's doing it because he loves you and he loves God. He's not my lackey to come collect this money. This is for something else. And then not only is he sending Titus, but he begins to send, there's a couple others that he's going to send with him as well. In verses 18 through 19, he says, With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Now, the truth is, nobody knows who this guy is that Paul's talking about. This one or the, the next messenger that we're going we're gonna to read about as well. Um, and it's actually pretty odd because Paul um, never names his adversaries. He's actually he's pretty, has a lot of uh, integrity like that. He's not calling out people by name. But he typically writes the names of those who, who are co-laboring with him, those who are his supporters. But for some reason, he didn't name this guy, and he doesn't name the next messenger as well. We have no idea who he is. But... We do know the Corinthian church will know who he is because he's famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. The churches here is likely referring to, to the churches that Paul planted in Macedonia. So uh, Berea, Thessalonica, um, uh, Philippian church, that one as well. Um, but this, this, this guy is famous. He's known by everybody. He's a good preacher, and he's been picked. He's been appointed elected, however you want to say, he's been, he's been picked by these churches to go with Paul and to go with Titus to collect this money for the, for the, for the saints to be taken to Jerusalem. And the, the Bible says that, or Paul says that he, he's doing it uh, for the glory of the Lord and to show our goodwill. So one, he's going because he wants to glorify God. This is another one of those, those servants that just wants to serve. He wants to glorify God. That should be the attitude of every single one of our hearts is to serve in order to glorify God. Not to glorify ourselves, not to glorify others, but to glorify God. So he's coming to glorify the Lord by helping carry out 
this act of grace and also to show Paul's goodwill and intentions. And you wonder, well, why does he need to cover or to, to show Paul's goodwill and intentions? So in 2 Corinthians 8, 20-21, Paul goes on, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the, in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So why is he worried about his intentions, his goodwill and intentions? Because it turns out that 2,000 years ago, money was a difficult topic, <laughs> just like it is today. Nobody liked dealing with money back then. Nobody liked preaching on money back then. Turns out that, that uh, technology changes, but people don't. So in order for there to be no cause for accusation, that's what he says here, so there should be no blame, no one should blame us, there'd be no cause for accusation, there'd be no cause for impropriety. This man was coming along with Titus, as well as the messenger we'll read about in the next verses, to, to make sure that everything's on the up and up. He wants to make sure that, that nobody's nobody, uh, one, is accusing him or even has the cause to accuse him of something untoward. He is taking every precaution. And the truth is, church, this is good advice for all of us. You know, one of the things that we do in the church here is that when we receive the offering, um, when the basket runs through here, you'll see it run to the back, it gets locked in the office. And then we have two people that count the offering together every Sunday. And then they fill out a form, and they sign it, their names to it, to verify that the information is accurate. They counted it, and then they prepare the deposit. And then we have a third person recount the deposit to make sure that everything is there. And it's not because we don't trust the people that are back there. I wouldn't put them back there if I didn't trust them. But it's to make sure that there's, there's no one that can say, well, they're just giving money off the top. We have checks and balances in place. We want to make sure that there's, there's no opportunity for, for someone to think that something untoward is going on. And that's why we do those things. This is good advice for anything in your life. This means that if you're a young person and you're dating, don't be going around alone with another woman or an, another man. Because you can find yourself, one, in a situation that you're not going to be able to get out, to, out of because hormones are stupid and they make you do stupid things. But two, you could be setting a bad example for other Christians who are seeing what you're doing. Don't give any occasion for somebody to think something untoward. If you're married, do not ever be in the same room with uh, uh, someone of the opposite sex that's not your wife alone. You, that should just be your rule in life. That's been my, you would not believe how many things I've had to cancel. Jan can tell you when we've had to meet here, if I couldn't get somebody here, because she helps out with uh, keeping our records. So we meet here to go through the record book. If somebody can't meet here, we've had to cancel it because th that's just a rule in my life. I won't meet with, with, a, with another woman that's not my wife alone, period. That's just good, good sense. Because otherwise, people can start accusations, even if it's not true. So that's what Paul's doing here. He says, look, we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. He's wanting to do the right thing. So church, I would encourage every one of you, let us all aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Amen? And then he finishes the chapter here, verses 23 through 24. He says, and with them we are sending our brother, this is the, the third person, this is the second unnamed guy, our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many manners, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit 
And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of your boasting and of our boasting about you to these men. So now Paul is talking about this other person, this other unnamed disciple with Titus, probably from one of the other Macedonian churches. And he's been tested. He's been found earnest. This is a guy that's serious about serving in the kingdom of heaven. He's serious about the business of God, and he's actually even more serious, even more earnest, because his great confidence in the Corinthians. Because here's the thing. Paul often boasts about the Corinthians to the other people in the other churches. And I think it's pretty cool to see this guy from one of the other churches in Macedonia to be so excited for the work that's been doing by God and the, the Corinthian church. You know, so often in today's church, we... And when we see other churches being successful, instead of, instead of celebrating that, we get a little butthurt on the inside that, that we don't think it's happening here. Like, why is God doing something for somebody else but not for us? But truthfully, we should be rejoicing with Him when God is doing something great. And I think that's pretty cool that this guy is doing that. He's excited about what's happening and wants to be a part of it. And then finally, on one last assessment of Titus and these men's credentials, and this this may have been just in case somebody said, hey, why, why is Paul sending these people down to get this money? What is Paul doing? And Paul says, well, here's your answer. He says, Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers. The Greek word here is apostle, by the way. just means they're messengers. They're messengers for the churches, the glory of Christ. So these, these guys are just working for the church, working for God's glory. They're working for these other churches. And we have all the churches working together. One, like I said, because we don't want any impropriety to be noticed, but also because churches should just work together. So he says that they're messengers for the glory of Christ. He says, so then give proof before these, the churches of your love. And he already talked about that. What would show their love to be genuine is for them to give and be charitable because of the grace of God. And it's important that it's because of the grace of God, not out of duty, not out of some sense of like, I want them to think that we're loving, but because of their natural response to what Christ has done, they're going to give, and that's going to, to demonstrate, give proof of their love, and then also of our boasting about you to these men. You know, when Titus went down the first time with a letter, Paul was talking up the Corinthian church. And I still think that's funny because I imagine Titus knew what the letter said and the whole letter is just rebuking the Corinthian church like it's 1 Corinthians. You guys have read it. It's not a, 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 a pleasing letter the whole time. Most of it's not. Matter of fact, Paul was worried about how they were going to receive it because it was so direct and to the point and it was such a great rebuke. But when they get down there, they respond properly and they receive Titus, and they renew their zeal for Paul. And Titus says, man, these guys are everything you said about them, which I thought was strange because you've been talking them up in one hand, and then you give me this letter to deliver, which makes it seem like they're nothing like you're talking talking to me about them. But Paul is boasting about them. They show up, and, and, and they prove Paul's boasting correct to Titus. And now he says, you know what? I want you to do it again to these men. Show them that everything that I've said about you is true. And show them that your love is true as well. Now, church, I hope that as a church, just like the Corinthian church was encouraged to be generous, that we'll always be encouraged to be generous as well. Because that's the grace of God working inside of you. So let's be a 
people who are generous, not of our own doing, but just letting God work inside of us. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Hallelujah. I was talking today about this idea of being generous out of a response to everything that Christ has done inside of us. And this is true for each and every one of us who have received the free gift of salvation. That when you do that, something inside of you changes. And you want to respond to what God has done inside of you in ways that you could never have imagined. You want to show your love and honor to him just as much as he's given everything to you. Now, for those of us who have been born again, who have received this free gift of salvation, we understand what that means. We've all experienced that in our lives. But if you've never received salvation, if you've never received that free gift of life, I want you to know that Jesus loves you, that God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And God wants nothing more than you to be right with him. But here's the thing. There's nothing that we can do to be right with God. The truth is, is that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us deserved death, and every single one of us will find it impossible to be right with God on our own. So God did the impossible for us, and he sent his son to give his life on the cross, to pay for every sin, every failure, every falling, every mess up that you've ever had. So I want to take a moment, if there's anybody here today or anybody listening online, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not sure that you're right with God, if you're not sure that you're going to spend eternity in heaven, I want to give you the opportunity to receive that free gift of salvation, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that you can be certain of your eternity. Is there anybody here in the room that's not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Hallelujah. I thought everybody here had. If you're online and you've not done that and you want to give your life to, to Jesus Christ, just go ahead and reach out to me. You can reach out to me by email, uh, wayne.griffith at Miranda.church. You can reach out um, by my phone, which is the phone number on the church webpage. Um, you can comment in the, the comment section of these videos. But if you want to, to be right with God, if you want to be made brand new, if you want to have every sin forgiven, then let me know so I can pray with you and introduce you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.